Our passage this morning is found in Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Beautiful passage from Scripture from Micah chapter 5 together. We are in our eighth week uh, in the Minor Prophets together, walking through the book of 12 as they're otherwise known this week in the Minor Prophet Micah. These books have been uh, a blessing as we've seen two realities taking place from book to book as we've made our way through the reality of the holiness and justice of the Lord. Have you seen it? You've seen who God is, his greatness, his, his righteousness, his justice and holiness. And then we've also seen his grace and salvation the reality of impending judgment upon sin, and, and then even the, the grace of the warning of the impending justice of God, and the grace to preserve a remnant, to save. So these are the two realities that we've seen in parallel that really are the theme of the, the minor prophets, the glory of God in salvation through judgment. This morning in Micah, these Powerful, this powerful theme continues. Micah does really three things. Uh, the first that it happens a few times is Micah presents the Lord's complaint as a witness against them. The Lord himself, we'll see it in just a moment, he rises up and comes as his own witness to the sin of the people. And then Micah declares two things, and this shouldn't surprise us. He declares judgment, and then he declares salvation. This quote from commentator Kenneth Barker, he writes, the book of Micah is arranged in three cycles of judgment and salvation. That's three cycles that include both judgment and salvation. Cycles one and three are more lengthy in judgment. The middle cycle, cycle two, is more lengthy in salvation. Now, as is true with all of the uh, minor prophets, it's best to get ourselves oriented a little bit into the context. You can do that in Micah by just reading verse 1, as you can with really most of the minor prophets. Verse 1 goes like this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. All right, so we have Micah, who is the prophet. We have the Lord as the first character, the first actor, the first speaker in the book. You have this context of where Micah's from. We have the days, we have the time frame. The time frame is three kings of Judah. Now, right away, I hope that some of us are able to come up with in our mind, and others will bring you along with the fact that the, the Israel had broken by this point into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, known as Samaria uh, and, and other names, the southern kingdom, known by its great city, Jerusalem, also known as Judah. Well, Micah is uh, prophesying, is, is recording the words of the Lord to the people of God in during the course of the kings of Judah in the south. And so most of what he says is going to have to do with the southern kingdom. So you might remember uh, in Jonah a few weeks ago that the Lord sent Jonah to a city called Nineveh, all right? Jonah went the other way, right? 
Nineveh is a city that is the capital of another empire, not the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Israel, but rather a foreign empire known as Assyria. And Jonah was sent to Assyria in order to call the Assyrians, and specifically the Ninevites, who are the people of Nineveh, to repentance. And they repented. They turned, and they were saved. They preserved the judgment of the Lord that Jonah was to go and proclaim did not come upon them at that moment. But here we are, a little more than 100 years later, and they've already returned to their old ways. And their old ways, including the ongoing conquering of kingdoms, and specifically in this case, they come against Jerusalem. So Nineveh is going to come against Jerusalem and, and all of the southern kingdom. They've already ransacked and destroyed Samaria and the northern kingdom, and now they're coming against Judah. And they come against Judah specifically during the course of the reign of Hezekiah. And you're like, I've heard that word. Yes, we read it just a second ago. It was in verse 1. You've got your Bibles open, so you can find it real quickly, right? This is the third of the kings. So near the end of the ministry of Micah, There is this great empire with its great city, Nineveh, that are going to come against Judah and specifically Jerusalem. The king of Assyria in 701 BC, when all of this takes place, is King Sennacherib. And here's King Sennacherib's words. We actually have his words, not recorded in Scripture, but recorded elsewhere for us. He says this, As for Hezekiah, the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, Right, so you can hear him. He's puffed up. I have a yoke. He's my servant. Judah belongs to me. Right. As for Hezekiah, the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, forty-six of his strongly fortified cities, as well as the villages of their environs, I surrounded, and I conquered. Two hundred thousand one hundred fifty people I brought here and counted as booty. As for him. Like a bird in a cage, I shut him up in Jerusalem, his royal city. You can hear this king. He's puffed up. He's proud. He's the king of Nineveh and Assyria, the great kingdom. And he's destroyed the cities not only of Samaria. They're already wiped out and gone. But by the time we get to Hezekiah, destroyed all of the great cities of Judah except for one. And he surrounded Jerusalem and he shut him up like a bird in a cage. But he did not conquer Jerusalem. We have a record of that, actually, in 2 Corinthians 19, verses 35 and 36. Here's what we find out. You know, Sennacherib tries to paint it all real strong, but here's what actually happened. The night, and that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. What that passage goes on to say is not only did he live in Nineveh for a couple days, but he wound up getting himself killed, assassinated in Nineveh. This great king puffed up in all his glory, destroying Samaria, sacking all the cities uh, around Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem, winds up going back to Nineveh with his tail between his legs and getting assassinated. That's an important piece for the context of Micah. There is an an impending coming and an experience during the course of the lifetime of Micah, disaster in Judah. It is a disaster. Yes, he goes home, but after the sacking and the carrying off of thousands upon thousands of Judean peoples. And the second thing that Micah Uh, may or may not have actually seen himself, probably not, but the other prophets do see, is the destruction of Judah itself. Yes, it held up under the assault of Assyria. But as we looked at in, in recent weeks, there's a new kingdom that arises very quickly, destroys Nineveh, overcomes the Assyrian kingdom, the kingdom of King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And Babylon comes. And doesn't just sack the cities around Jerusalem, sacks Jerusalem itself, destroys the temple, and carries the people off into exile. Now, 
hopefully, by paying attention to this, we have a bit of the context into which Micah is speaking. He's speaking uh, about the reality of God's judgment in Nineveh and the impending judgment of God by Babylon upon all of Judah. This is the context into which Micah drops. I'd ask us to go to the Lord in prayer that we would come to understand his word. Lord God, I pray that we would, uh, you would work by your word, that your words would work in us, and that we would give attention, that we would have expectation that so much of this his history, and some of us, we don't, we're not really into history. Um, so, so much of these are lots of words, and some of us aren't that great at reading. And some of this is going to take a long time to unpack, and some of us don't have great attention spans. There's lots of reasons why we wouldn't give attention. Some of us are just tired today. So, Lord, I pray that you'd keep us, that you'd be patient with us, that your word would speak, that you would overcome our weakness, and that you would overcome our sin, our laziness even, and that you would work among your people, that we would trust your word is good, and your word is corrective, and your word would work, that we would not only understand, but that we would believe, and we would not only believe, but we would also be changed by your word this morning in the midst of the congregation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said that Micah has three cycles to it, and you'll see it. You'll see it very quickly. Uh, the, the first cycle that we're going to look at, remember, it contains a, a judgment and justice, and it also in, contains a word of salvation. It begins in verse 2. I said we'd see this. Verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Essentially, it's saying the Lord is watching, and he's seen. And what he's seen, you're going to need to be prepared for, because what he's seen is really isn't good. The Lord is coming, and he's coming as witness to the earth of what he's seen and what happens when he comes is cosmic and catastrophic. How do we know that? Because look at verse three. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He'll come down, tread on high places on the earth. So each time he steps down, it's gonna be some great mountaintop. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And he continues, why? Why is all this happening? What is it the Lord has witnessed and seen? What he's seen is verse five. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, the house of Israel, that northern kingdom I spoke about. Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Oh, the southern kingdom also, both the northern and southern kingdom, the Lord has seen transgression and he's coming out as witness to what he's seen. Micah, by the time he gets to verse 8, he begins to lament. For this, verse 8, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. And I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Man, I don't, I've never heard of an ostrich mourn, but I'm guessing it's probably not pretty. All right? He's making these, this lamentation. For her wound is incurable, and it's come to Judah. Man, it's no surprise to me what would happen in Samaria. I know how they are up there in that northern kingdom. But I'm a southern kingdom kind of guy. And it's coming to us. Here it comes to Judah. Verse 16, at the end of this little section, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. What's he saying? I mean, he says it. Your children are gonna go off into exile. You know, it's one thing to say that judgment is coming down on you. It's another thing to admit that there is a destruction that is going to wreak havoc upon the whole of the civilization, including your own children. And he wails and he mourns. Now, one of the things that we're going to do this morning, there's different ways that you could preach a text and there's different ways to prepare. One of the things that I hope for And really, much of our time in these minor prophets, you can't preach a whole minor prophet in a morning. That's just silly, all right? Um, What are we going to do? Well, one of the things I hope to do is just to give us a little bit of of a hook, a little bit of some time together in the Word that gives you enough to say, you know what? I want to go to that. I want to know. 
I want to hear, I want to understand, and I want to believe, and I want to say, Lord, do your work by your word. I believe you speak by your word and your spirit in us today. All right? So let me give you an example of that. Look at verse 13. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants inhabitants of Lachish. Anybody know where that is? I know a couple of you do. Don't tell me. All right? (laughs) Lachish. Uh, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I don't know where it is. I don't know what it was like. I had to read books about it and pull up commentaries and figure it out. It's hard work getting to know these things that are much of which is from another culture to get to know that this is where, though, the Lord has chosen to make his revelation by talking about a city called Lachish. Well, it turns out that that city is one of the last cities to fall to Sennacherib. The beginning of the sin that he speaks about there in verse 13 is probably their trust in their military might against the invader rather than their trust in the Lord. How many of the cities that fell before them stood up in their military might and opposed this great invader and were crushed? So too it was with Lachish. One side note, there are a lot of details, a lot of cities in Micah. We're not even going to get close to digging into hardly any of them. That means that there's yet work to do, right? I don't encourage you. Let's go do it. Let's go do some of the, let's get to know where some of the cities are so we can understand, oh, that's what he's saying. One of the last holdouts before Jerusalem and the great siege of Sennacherib, it's going to fall because it trusted in its own military power rather than crying out to the Lord in faith. Remember last week, the righteous will live by faith. Not by their preparations, not by their righteousness even, but rather by faith. So what in the world's happening? Why? Why has the Lord come out against Judah? And you say, well, you said earlier it was transgressions, right? Yeah, but like what? What in the world would cause the Lord? I mean, there's transgressions everywhere, right? It seems like that's what we do best. Why in the world would the Lord come out like this with such might and power to witness against Judah? Well, chapter 12 begins to explain it to us. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. What does that mean? They're not even up in the morning, and their mind's already turning. This is the way they are. They dream about working evil deeds. They conspire on their beds early in the morning, their wickedness and evil. When the morning dawns, oh, they're ready. They've been thinking about it. They've been plotting in the night. They perform their evilness because it is in the power of their hand. Why do they work evil? Why? It tells us. Well, because they can. It's within the power of their right hand to do what they do. And they do it. Well, what do they do, though? Come on now. What does it say? Verse 2. They, they covet fields and seize them. They see a field, well-tilled, nice fruitful land. And they say, I see it. It's in the power of my right hand to take it. I've been dreaming about having that field all night long. Mine. And they go out and seize the field and the houses that were on that field. And they take them away and they oppress a man and his house. A man and his inheritance. Now this is so important. This is a description of land grabbers. The man and his means of life and giving life to his children are seized from him. Leviticus tells us, describes for us how the households of Israel were supposed to live in their land. I'll give you a hint. It's not like this. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 and 24, it says this. The land, this is the Lord, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine. Who... To whom does the land where the houses are built and the farms produce their produce, who does the land belong to? Mine, says the Lord. 
you are strangers and sojourners with me on my land. It's my land, the Lord says. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Here's what he's saying. If you read through much of Leviticus, you'll see this playing itself out. The land belongs to the Lord. And therefore, as the Lord has allotted land to particular households, he has done so in perpetuity for all time. The land belongs to the Lord, but he has allotted it to particular households. And they, that land upon which they would ma- build their houses and make their life together from generation to generation must remain accessible to the family to whom it is allotted by the Lord. And yet you have this dude laying in his bed, dreaming about land. He says, I want it. And because it's within his power of his right hand, he goes out and he takes it for himself. And now who does the land belong to? Me. Because it's within my power to take it. Who did he steal from? Oh, now I know why the Lord treads on the high places. Now I know why he's gone out to witness against them. You're a thief, and you're stealing my land from the people to whom I gave it, that they would flourish in my land. If you have to sell the land, if you have to use it as, as a sort of a capital means to, to be able to move forward, maybe there was a drought and you need to, to leverage a loan in order to continue to work that land, maybe so, but it shall not be sold in perpetuity. The household and the family is not to lose access to the land that the Lord has given them by which he, where he would bless and by which the, the people would find themselves flourishing in the land. It's not to be irrevocably transferred to another family household. It's not to be stolen or grabbed. This would, what? Permanently impoverish the, farmer, the former owner and all his descendants. You see, the man who plots on his bed isn't just stealing land. He's destroying generations. He's destroying a little culture, a little microculture, a little people and a little plot of land with their houses and their children. And he's destroying that little culture where the, the, the ethnos, the family of the Lord was supposed to grow up from generation to generation, preserved and provided for by the Lord, that the Lord would be glorified on that land. And this guy steals it. This evil practice gives us a glimpse at the nature of true poverty. What the Lord is witnessing against is not some people having more than other people. He doesn't say the problem is you have the power to take the land. The problem is that they go out and take it and accumulate for themselves in this way to the destruction and impoverishment of others. The fact that the Lord himself gave some more land The fact is that the Lord himself gave some more land than others had. Others had better land than others had. And honestly, some were more faithful and fruitful in the land that the Lord gave than others were. And this is okay. But all the families were provided for. To take this land is like taking the anvil from a blacksmith. It's like taking a wrench from a plumber or a pen and ink from a writer. This is, there's a particular caution and a glimpse at justice that ought to be exercised when, when a person's livelihood is at risk, when the little culture that is a household is at risk. Because what is at risk is the impertuity of, of the... the the passing on from one culture, one generation to the next of the glory of the Lord and the provision of the people in the natural way of the created way in which the Lord would provide for the family. It's one thing, you see. If, if a family breaks a TV, loses a favorite book, it's another thing when the only vehicle that the family house has breaks down and they can no longer drive to work. You see, there's a difference there. One is a loss, yes, 
and sad. Loss is sad. The other impoverishes. What ought to be done? Let me say, what ought to be done is so far beyond, uh, on a ground level, anything at all that I would want to comment on this morning. Let us say this. This is a complex matter of justice that must be worked out in the community. What must be done? This must be worked out in the context of the community. That's what must be done. And we'll see the way that that is worked out as we move our way through Micah. But one thing that ought not be done is for someone in the community to steal the vehicle of another by manipulation or force. That's one thing that we're pretty sure of should not be done. That one should not be impoverished and their generations cut off by this manipulation and violence. Surely somebody spoke up. Surely someone said, we can no longer take away from our brothers the inheritance that the Lord has given to them. Surely there were some who rose up and said, this probably isn't good. Someone in the community began to speak. Well, let's check. Let's see what they said. Verse 6, chapter 2. Do not preach, thus they preach. Oh, there were preachers. And the preacher said, don't preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. It's within our power to do, to plot evil on our beds, and to steal from our brothers. So stop preaching against it as if the Lord would ever rise up and witness against us. I mean, he's made us powerful. Clearly, we're the blessed ones of the Lord. He's given us great walls like Lachish and all around Jerusalem. And he's given us mighty lands. We are the blessed ones. Don't preach. The, the thieves, they basically conspire together to raise up their own false prophets that would shout down the witness of the Lord. Micah 2 11, if a man should go about, Micah says, I love this. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Now there's a message for you. I have two points this morning. Wine and strong drink. Application point, right? (laughs) Eat, drink, and be merry. You know all that land that the Lord has blessed you with? Make more wine and drink it up, folks, because you're blessed, is this prophet. Now he would be the preacher for this people, and he's a fool, because the Lord is about to tread on the high places, and he's coming out as witnesses. The New Testament picks up this theme. Before we think that this was just a problem with the, with the, with the wealthy land grabbers of Judah to cry out for prophets like this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, get that, hold that, remember that phrase. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Some are land accumulators, others are profit accumulators. And they build up their podcast scrolling list with those that suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's our natural inclination to seek out teaching that scratches our itching ears with no care for the truthfulness of the teaching and with the, with the atheistic foolhardiness to say that the Lord will never come. He'll never witness. He'll never come and speak or see. All that matters is that it confirms what we already believe and affirms our idolatrous practices. And then, Micah, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Out of nowhere, we're rolling along. In my Bible, anyway, there's not even like a paragraph mark. Chapter, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He's going to gather together all the sheep. What's he going to do? Verse 13, 
He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and, and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You know what that's an image of? A people who are no longer robbed from, but are shepherded. And what does the shepherd do? Well, he brings them beside still waters and bountiful pastures. He cares for them and he leads them and he protects them. You know what verses 12 and 13 are? They're the end of cycle one. And we have two little verses that really out of nowhere are a sudden hope. You know, I was reading the preceding verses and I was thinking to myself, uh, just as, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking to myself, man, it's good that the Lord's going to judge all these land grabbers. And that was sort of the disposition that I saw sort of in my heart. And it is. It's good that I would have the good response to the justice of the Lord and say, man, he's nailing it. Glad God's going to come out against them. But wait. When the armies come, won't all the men, women, children, particularly those who lost their homes, also be destroyed? Aren't even the people who lost their homes the most vulnerable among the people? Verses 12 and 13 are an answer to that question. The people who put their trust in the Lord have a hope. And they ain't got no hope. They don't even have the lands of their inheritance or anything to pass to their children. Their little microculture has been destroyed by the land grabbers. And now judgment's coming upon the land. And the Lord says, no, I'm a shepherd. You follow him. I'll keep you. I'll bless you. There is a remnant. You have a good shepherd, people. The Lord has given to the community a way to live together. And we have to examine our lives in the community based not upon how things work out for ourselves and our households. You're looking around, you're like, got a good job, managed to accumulate a bunch of wealth for myself, clearly I'm blessed by the Lord. But rather, we examine our lives in light of the word of God. And it's by God's own word that our itching ears aren't scratched what they are? They're corrected. They're corrected. In the whole of this first cycle, we have the Lord who sees. What he sees is injustice. As we move to the second cycle, as we move a bit quicker through the next section, we have the Lord who calls a people to know justice. There's a severe accusation that begins in cycle two, chapter three, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Isn't that your job? You're supposed to know what justice looks like, rulers and heads. You who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And break their bones in pieces, chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. I'm like, what? He's speaking to the leaders of the people. And their, their job is to know justice, and they're making stew out of the people. Now compare that to the good shepherd at the end of chapter 2. Micah does this on purpose. He moves on to the next cycle saying, you know, I just told you. I gave you a glimpse at hope. There is a good shepherd, and it's not them. Judah's leadership, is it not for you to know justice, verse 1? I want to just take a moment to consider what does it mean to know justice? Justice is that which each member of the community owes to the others in accordance with their roles in the community. Justice is, is, is what we owe to the other members of the community. That is justice. According to the role that we occupy in the community. It's real simple. We could make an argument that the justice that a child owes in a household is different than a governor owes in a state. Right? Right? 
They occupy a different role within the context of the community, but it's still justice that is owed to the other members of the community. A child has responsibilities of justice to his or her siblings, to his or her peers, to his or her parents, and even his or her political leaders. There's a measure of justice. Uh, One commentator notes that the Lord... That there are roles of the Lord, a king, a priest, a firstborn son. There's also the role that a community has as a whole. Many other roles that are filled in a community. And each of these have a role to play in maintaining justice in the land. And when the people fail to know justice, the Lord will bring justice according to his role. And his role is that of covenant keeper. And he promises to bless those who know and walk in justice and to curse those who walk in injustice. This is the role of the highest leader of the land, the Lord God. One commentator makes the note that that a good definition of justice is a right ordering of all society. A just society is a society in whose, which all of the members are rightly ordered together in their relationship with one another. Justice is necessarily relational. Justice is not the role of a political or ruling class alone. Will you hear that? Justice is not the role of only particular high-up people in a land. Justice is the role of the whole of the community according to their role in the land. According to your place, the greatest injustice in chapter 3 is that those who are given a position to rule in the name of the Lord leveraged their power for their own gain. You remember what it said? Why do they go out and do what they do and steal land? Well, it's because it's within their power to do so. The Lord gave them great power in the community. And they were given that power as leaders and rulers in the community. Great authority. But they take that role and they leverage it for their own glory. They destroy justice. And they are idolaters before the name of the Lord. They broke covenant. And that's the heart of injustice. The heart of injustice is to break the covenant relationship with the Lord, occupying a role that we are not given, most often a role that is the Lord's role alone. Thaddeus Williams, in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, offers this perspective that if justice means giving to each person his due, then justice demands that God be given his due, which is why the first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the greatest injustice known to man is to set up ourselves or another created thing in the place of the Lord as God. Micah again returns to the injustice of the false prophets. By the time you get to verse 5, the the false prophets are crying, Peace! (laughs) Check this out. Look at verse 5. When they have something to eat, Ah, peace among the land, peace among the people, when my belly's full. Therefore, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. So who is their God? This guy. Their stomach. Their itching ears. The itching ears that they think that they can manipulate a place for themselves among the people by their words. They aren't prophets, they're idolaters. But as for me, in verse 8, Micah says, there remains true prophets. The false prophets are motivated by greed, but Micah says the true prophets are, are filled with the Spirit of God. They still see him. They see that he is the glorious one, and he is the one who gives right order to the people, not our appetites. And that's so important. Where do we go wrong with this injustice thing? Lots of places. But let me suggest that at the root of where we go wrong, is when our appetites occupy the place that the Lord ought occupy. That our our guts, our desires, our stomachs, our greed, as the passage says, 
Occupy the place of the ordering of the society rather than the spirit of the Lord whose word orders the society, not by desire, but by revelation. Again, as the chapter 3 continues, he rebukes the leaders, he includes the priests and the prophets. This time, in verse 11, is not the Lord in our midst? They cry out, surely the Lord is in our midst, we won't be destroyed. We're the blessed ones, remember? These evildoers invoke the name and the presence of the Lord as their protection, but they're not taking refuge in the Lord himself. They're using the Lord as an excuse for their evil. And verse 12 is one of the harshest statements of justice that you'll find. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. A city is going to become a plowed field, a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. He's about to come in justice. We're in cycle two. And cycle two is rich with salvation. And chapter, uh, chapter three ended with one of the worst statements of complete judgment. But chapter four opens the other half with the righteous role of the Lord in the covenant. By the time, by this time in verse two, many nations are coming. And I would just call you to this for the sake of our, our continuing movement through the book. Spend time at chapter four. Spend time in chapter four, and I would encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah chapter two, verses two through three, and you'll see a parallel account. Isaiah is, is, occupies sort of a political, uh, 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 associates in sort of a political class as a prophet, and Micah comes as a, like a farmer class, but they both say the same thing. And in the latter days, there is coming a time when, in which the Lord will gather a people to himself in this land that was so recently destroyed. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13, verses, verse 14. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, a place to go for hope in light of this text. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Pause on that for just a moment. The city that is to come is not a city that doesn't actually exist. It's just like our hope of heaven. Now, when we, when we imagine, when we pull into our imaginations by faith the city that is to come, it is a real city. It's called Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and it will descend and it will occupy a plot of land that shouldn't be called plot, all right? A massive land. And it will sit there and it will be called Jerusalem and people will gather to it. We have a real and lasting eternal city. And all the nations will come and find refuge and safety and justice, a rightly ordered community under our Lord. I just would call you, imagine. Imagine a world that walked in the ways of the Lord. I mean, honestly, try it. Try it over your meal table. I hate passwords, all right? And almost every time I have to come up with another password to forget, I think to myself, why do I have to have a password? Why can't I just go and say, hey, it's me? And I think, well, injustice. That's why. Because this... Community is not rightly ordered. If the whole of the community had a, had a good shepherd with a city in the midst of the, the kingdom, and the whole of the community was rightly ordered, we would simply go to websites and say, it's, it's me. I'm here. Oh, I know. I saw you. <laughs> and then we could download all of our information not behind some password wall. Man, that's just passwords. How much is so broken in this world that in a rightly ordered kingdom, a city that is forever, imagine. And one of the things, one of the reasons I mentioned that is the way of the Lord gets such a bad rap today in our hearts and throughout every culture that we've seen, as if it was a bad way. Imagine a world that was rightly ordered by the Ten Commandments with the Lord our God first and head. Just imagine. 
man, there's not, I don't care if it's communism or democracy, and ain't no, no ordering of society that's better than that one with the Lord God at our head. We need to go to cycle two. In cycle two, we're told, do justice. In Micah chapter six, where cycle two begins, the Lord calls the earth to hear his argument. And he, he, he's making his witness, and now he's calling the witnesses of the mountains and the, the sky to bear witness that the Lord has been good. In verses three through five, he says, I've been good. I have been a good shepherd in the midst of the people, and yet you still wander off after foolishness. And then we go to Micah 6, 6 through 8, where we'll close. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before my God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Oh, now there's a genius idea. As long as we're piling up all the righteous things you could do, why don't we we give our firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse eight, he's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The evildoers of the first and second cycle performed all of the religious duties. They did just about all of these. Some of them even sacrificed their children to false gods. The evildoers have done all of their religious duties, but the covenant requires justice, a rightly ordered society. The covenant was to secure a way for the community to live in the Lord's peace and to worship his good name in that peace, and they destroyed that peace. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly? To do justice is to live in a community according to the role appointed you by the Lord. Love kindness is to cherish the way of God's covenant. God's covenant is known by his steadfast love and faithfulness. When love kindness is a code word for love the covenant of the Lord, Walk humbly. Live in light of the fear of the Lord. Be careful to remain under his lordship. Don't deviate to worship another god. Stay under his lordship. Micah 6, 8 is such an important verse. We couldn't close without going to it, but it is also used as a legalistic club, and I hate it every time I see it. I've seen so much of it recently. It just pummel the heads of the church. You ain't done justice yet. What's wrong with you? I'm like, have you seen anything of what I've done? I ain't done nothing right. I'm a sinner. That's why I'm in the church. Because I don't do justice. I have a problem. Man, justice is the least of my problems. I am disordered in my soul, let alone in the community. Yet we beat each other up with this. What does the Lord require? The Lord requires perfect justice in the whole of the community. Have you ever seen it? Why are we beating anybody up about this? We know that. But we at all times and in all places have failed at that perfect justice. Thank God that Micah ends with a psalm and a hymn. It's at the end of the book that we see that the way of the faithful seek his perfect justice. This is what Micah 6, 8 is a call for. The just ones are going to be those who are situated under the peace and justice of the covenant Lord. He is the right orderer of the society, not our performance of right order, you see. Micah 7, 7, precious. Micah 7, 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord And I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What's the cry? I'll tell you what. I don't see anybody else doing justice, but I will. As for me, I'll do justice. Right? No. As for me, I'm going to look to the just one. I'm going to look to the Lord. The righteous way is found not first in behaviors, but first in a posture. It's in a posture of dependence upon the Lord and a cry to help for him. Micah 7, 9, it's, it's a confession of sin. 
and a hope of restoration, that we can see justice, that we can know justice. And as we're situated in the perfect justice of our Lord, particularly in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both the just and the justifier. You want to know what justice looks like? You look at the cross. We're only one man, not you doing justice, but only one man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, has done justice and justified us. And he has purchased for us a beautiful look at the way of our God. And we're situated there. We never earn our place justified by God. We are only justified by him, but we love the place that he's purchased. And we who have been saved by grace because of the just work of our God say, I love the way of this God. Work me, change me, change us. Form a community that looks more like you, that does justice, loves the way of your covenant, walks humbly before our God. It's not as justice doers that we are redeemed. It's as a people who confess that the Lord is just to condemn me. Me. And as the redeemed, we come to cherish that the justice has fallen on Christ in my place. Man, the justice of the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the the many pieces that that are sort of laying on this sermon's floor and gather them up into the minds and the hearts of your church, that your word would go with us, and that the, the hard work, the on-the-ground work of what does it look like to be a people of faith who do justice. I pray that you would give us glimpses, and Lord, that we would be jealous for your glory above all things, and trust that a society ordered by the glory of our God is a society where we want to live, And by grace, through faith, we believe we will live when that city comes. Thank you, Lord. We we trust you. We pray that you would work in the midst of the congregation, even yet this morning, to glimpse you and to, to confess ourselves and to cry out for your redeeming grace. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.